Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Today I want to talk about some of the technical terms within Sufism, what they mean, and how they become implemented. All of the religions have laws, and these laws usually have a name. In Catholicism, they're called the canon law. That means the law of the things that are permissible and the things that are not permissible. In Islam, it's called the Sharia, the things that you can do and the things that you can't do. In Judaism, it's called Halakha. And what these laws do, um, is prescribe when you pray, uh, when you eat, what you eat, uh, relationships between people, uh, relationships uh, at the time of death and the way that estates are distributed. Because at one time, the religious law was the only law because all of the states were religious states. Uh, for instance, Iran is now the Islamic Republic of Iran, which means that their laws are their attempt at governing by the laws of Islam. Uh, Saudi Arabia is absolutely that way. Um, in Jerusalem, in the Israeli uh, controlled Jerusalem, there are special courts that are Islamic courts that deal with, for the most part, marriage and divorce and inheritance. And they do what they think is necessary uh, to maintain the integrity of the community. Now, in Sufism, Shariat is considered the first step of understanding what is expected of you. And that means conformance to the laws. And the, you, the laws are usually um, defined as that which it tells you to do in the Quran and the Sunnah, which means the way of the Prophet. In other words, if the Prophet did certain things, uh, these have been recorded and they're called Hadith. And Hadith tell you what the Prophet did under, circumstance, under certain circumstances and you are supposed to follow those circumstances. There are movements within Islam that claim that you have to go back to the way of the time of the prophet and that there is no modernity in the world and that all modernity is innovation and is inappropriate for your behavior. Within the Shariat, 
And when the shariat is treated as the whole of the law, as opposed to a part of the law, what often happens is severity takes over. And all of a sudden, everything gets enforced in an incredibly harsh, severe way. And the response by those enforcing the shariat is, these are God's commandments and it is incumbent on us to enforce them. And since you have broken God's commandments, we can do to you what is instructed to be done under these circumstances. But Sufism doesn't stop at Shariat. Sufism starts with Shariat. I'm talking about the law. And the first level of the law is the Shariat, the instructions as to what to do. In Sufiat, in Sufism, the devotees are already in compliance with the law. They don't cheat on their wives. They don't rob from people. Uh, they act appropriately. They do the right things. But they're interested in more than just doing the right things. They want to establish a relationship between God and man. And there were teachers who came along who set forth organizations and these are called tarikats. A tarikat is a way, a way to form the relationship between God and man. These tarikats were named after extraordinary teachers, and within these tarikats, people were taught to carry on this teaching. For instance, uh, you've all heard of Jalaluddin Rumi. In America, we call him Rumi. In uh, Turkey, where he's from, they call him Mevlana, which means our master. And his tariqat is known as the Mevlana tariqat. Uh, one of the great Sufi masters who lived in Baghdad, uh, his name was Abdul Qadir Jalani. His tariqat is known as the Qadiri tariqat. I am from the Qadiri Tariqat. My teacher, uh, Muhammad Rahim Baum Mahayadeen, was in the Qadiri Tariqat. So what happens when you enter into a Tariqat? First, you establish a relationship with a teacher. Very often, this relationship is very formal. Uh, you take some sort of oath after an introductory period. With my teacher, it was a little bit different. Um, and I'll explain it through a story. One time, I was in Sri Lanka, which is where he was from, and I was sitting in the room when a young lady 
uh, who was there had was married, and she got a letter from her husband who was in Syria at the time. And he said, I have taken hand with a teacher. Come to Syria, and you can take hand with me, with this teacher. And she asked my teacher, what should I do? And my teacher looked at her and laughed. And he said, the teacher, the sheikh that your husband has found is a hand sheikh. I'm a heart sheikh. Now, in that is the difference between this way and most ways. This way is about a real connection in the heart as opposed to recitations of allegiance. And we should understand the difference between true connections and recitations of allegiance. In Shariat, people will tell you to grow your beard a certain length, to wear your turban a certain way, to grow your hair a certain way. Uh, in my tarikat, it is said that you cannot reach God, Allah, by either the growing or shaving of hair. In other words, there are not any external signs in your physicality that show you're on the way. Of course, modesty is part of the way you should be dressing and the way you should carry yourself. And you should conform to whatever the conservative dress code is within the area where you reside. In the early 70s, um, this country was uh, full of people with beards and long hair. Uh, they were called hippies. And the, one of the first things that happened when you came in to see our teacher is you got a normal haircut and you shaved. Because 20 is 22, 23, 25 is too young to have a beard. Okay, so we go from the law to beginning to enter the way. And what's mostly taught in the first step of entering the way is adeb. Adeb means how to act. It means chivalry. It means courtesy. Matt, come up here, please. I want to demonstrate something with you. When two people, stand this way, when two people meet in the Mevlevi Tarikat, they take each other's hands like this and they kiss each other's hand. Both, that's it, both are at the same level and both are performing an act of submission to the other, but submission on an, in, a, in a state of equality. Even with the sheikhs, it's still done in that same way. So that kind of an attitude is developed. That kind of an interaction between people is developed. Once you have gotten to the point where 
you know when to be quiet, and you know when to talk, you know what to do at a table, you know how to eat, you know how to get up, you know how to walk appropriately, you know how to interact with people, you know how to have the, the proper courtesy with your elders. And this takes years to learn. Then you can move on to what is known as hakikat. Now, for those of you, and all of you who have been here a while, you've heard me say the word hak. And in our recitation, one of the uh, words that we say, one of the names of God that we say, is yahak, yahak, yahak. Hak means reality. And God is reality. Now, I want you all to say, Yahak. You'll notice that when you say Hak, the back of your throat closes. And guess what you can't do when your throat is closed? You can't breathe. So reality is that space between this world and the next world. It is an understanding that this world is not all there is, and there is a way past it. Now, how do you get from this world to the next world? How do you get into hakikat? How do you get into reality? How do you form a relationship with God. And any of you who've read Sufi books know that Sufism speaks constantly of love, but not ordinary love. It speaks about divine love, the love between the creator and the creation. Now, it is said that this world was created by the Creator out of love. That this world is sustained by the Creator out of love. And that the Creator loves each one of His creations. Now, these are not easy things to understand. But there are a lot of inferences that we can draw from understanding these things. The Creator loves all of His creations. If we want to become like the Creator, we have to learn to love all of creation. Now, there, the word love is used in many different ways in our language. A lot of it has to do with romance and with lust. This is not the kind of love that we're talking about. This is the kind of love that when the dervish, the devotee, was walking through the market and heard a watermelon uh, salesman scream, the sweetest there is, the sweetest there is, he fainted. 
Why? Because to him, the sweetest there is, is Allah. And the fact that his name was being shout, his, his, he was being shouted about in the streets caused him to enter that state of love and overwhelmed him. So, think about, imagine, try to understand the kind of love that it took to create existence. The kind of love that it takes to maintain and sustain existence. And take it a step further and think about your place in that relationship. God's individuated love for you in this understanding of creation. So what is it that we have to do? We have to learn how to love in a whole new way. And it's not romantic love. Romantic love was an invention of the 11th century Italians. And that's where Romeo and Juliet came from. This kind of divine love has to do with an unqualified acceptance, with an unconditional acceptance, with a love that is given freely without any conditions, that a love with a love that understands the condition of what comes before it and gives freely of that love in an attempt to bring the one who comes before it into that state of love. So how is love taught? How is love passed on? It's done by being in the midst of somebody who loves you in that way. Of somebody who actually loves in that way. Of somebody who unconditionally accepts you that you have no fear of and that you are comfortable with. And when you've entered into that space of comfort and serenity and peace, you then have the freedom to also love unconditionally. Now, it was said that, and I'll I'll give you an example of that kind of love. Mevlana Rumi, who I spoke about before, was the son of a great uh, jurist, a great teacher of the Shariat, the law. And he was a prodigy at understanding the law and became the greatest jurist of the law in his area. People would come to him constantly for decisions. People would come to him constantly to assist them in understanding how the law 
should operate. And then Shems of Tabrizi came into his life. And when they met, Rumi was on a horse, and he had stopped next to a river to give his horse some water. And Shems of Tabrizi, who's referred to usually just as Shems, said to him, you think that you know, but you don't know love. And without love, you're like a dry reed. There's no life to you. And uh, Rumi brushed him off. And Shem said to him, you're carrying all these books as if they were holy, as if they could do something. But they're just ink on paper. They're dry in the same way that you're dry. And uh, Rumi was beginning to get indignant. And Shems looked at him and said, So, indignant are you now? That's what dry things do. They begin to crackle. And he took his books and threw them in the river. And Rumi got very upset and started to scream. And... He said, maybe you'll understand better. And he pulled the books out of the water, and they were perfectly dry, and all the words were there, and they weren't ruined at all. And then Rumi understood that Shems was something extraordinary. And he asked him, why are you here? And he said, I was sent to teach you love so that what you're teaching has life in it and truth in it. Because without love, there is no life and there is no truth. Because our connection to our Creator is through love. And if you are taking the position that you are teaching on behalf of our Creator, you have to be teaching through love. And then he began to explain to him how love is at a higher level than Shariat. And even though you conform to the laws of Shariat, without love, there's no compassion there. There's no mercy there. There's no justice there. There's just dryness there. And he said to him, let's see how brave you are. Everyone looks at you in a certain way. Everyone respects you in a certain way. This respect is very important to you. This respect is what gives you the impetus to keep going. How would you be without this respect? How would you be if people mocked you? If people didn't show you this respect? So 
As some of you may know, drinking of alcohol is forbidden by uh, the Islamic religion. And the one who is making decisions on the law certainly shouldn't be drinking. So Shems told Rumi to go buy some wine and bring it back to him. So he went and got a bottle of wine, hid it in his coat, and came back and gave Shems the bottle of wine. And he said, oh, no, this didn't accomplish what I wanted to accomplish. Buy 16 bottles of wine and bring them to me. So he went back to the wine store, got 16 bottles of wine, and was carrying them. And as he was carrying them, they would drop and splash. And people saw this. So all of a sudden, Rumi was put in a place of humiliation. He was carrying wine, and the bottles were breaking, and everybody knew. Yet, he didn't mind the humiliation, because it was more important to be with Shems than it was to be respected. It was more important to understand love than to have honor. It was more important to understand love than to be a dignitary. It was more important to understand love than to be revered. All of a sudden, he began to understand that the praise that the world gives you is of no value next to understanding what divine love is. And in Shem's eyes, he could see divine love, and he could feel an alignment beginning to occur between himself and God. So when the shariat, the law, is interpreted through the hakikat, lines in the Quran change their meaning. For instance, to cut an to cut off the hand of a thief becomes to take the hand that steals and turn it into the hand that gives. So you do. You cut the stealing hand, but you cut it, you make it disappear by making it the giving hand. And once we understand love's influence on the law, the law changes its nature. Now, what happened is uh, Rumi stayed in contact with Shems for a period of time, somewhere between 18 months and two years, and learned uh, from him about what divine love is and how divine love is what makes the world be. The people who were watching Rumi through all of this didn't see that. They saw their esteemed jurist losing his way because he was no longer the one they had given honor to, and he was no longer the 
way that they imagined he should be. And what they did was they blamed Shem's for it because they wanted him to be the way he was because that was the level of their understanding. They were at the level of Shariat. Rumi was now moving into the level of Hakikat where the rules of the world begin to disappear and the rules of love take their place. So what did the people of Konya, which is the name of the city, do? They killed Shems. Now, why is this story so important? And why does this story have to be told over and over? Because love comes into every one of our lives. And it comes in different ways. Now, we all have our ideas of the way that it should come into our lives. So when it comes, we aren't really prepared for it, and we don't really see it as love. We see it as something else, and we turn from it often, or we accept it. Now, the point is that we either accept that love and incorporate it into our being, or we turn from it. So we do one of two things. We kill Shems, or we become Rumi. You become the exalted one by accepting divine love, or you become the ordinary one by rejecting divine love. So we each have to make that decision. We each have to decide what it is we want to do. Now, what that divine love does is it burns away everything that isn't divine. For instance, arrogance cannot exist when divine love exists. Anger can't exist when divine love exists. Jealousy can't exist when divine love exists. Feeling helpless doesn't exist when divine love exists. We have to have this extraordinary faith in the fact that there is a relationship between ourselves and the divine, and that relationship is a loving, kind, overwhelmingly giving relationship where everything that we need is supplied to us and given to us. It is that faith that allows us to move on the path. And it is that faith that stops us from killing Shems. Otherwise, we revert back to saying, I need this, and I can't live my life without that. 
these worldly things are more important than my loving relationship with my Creator. All through history, there have been monasteries. And people have left the world to join these monasteries so that they could deny themselves access to the world and concentrate on their relationship with God. Well, the world's different now. And the world moves at a different pace now. And the things that were reserved as secrets for monasteries are now being made available openly to people of the world so that they can live their life within the world, yet separate from the world, as if it were a monastic life. In other words, we have to learn how to shelter ourselves from the world. I was in a uh, mosque in a town in northern Turkey where the head of the Halveti order of Sufism uh, began his teaching. And in this place, there was a downstairs and there was a balcony. And if you walked up to the balcony, at the back of the balcony, it was a semicircle, and there were about 20 doors all next to each other in the semicircle. And if you opened one of the doors, what you found was a small space about five or six feet deep and about three feet wide, which is about the dimensions of a grave. And what would happen in this place was these devotees, these dervishes, a dervish is somebody who's involved in a tariqat, would after prayers go up and put themselves into these closets and meditate. So, and meditate to do what? To bring themselves closer to an alignment with the divine love that is the creator. To bring themselves closer to hakikat. To bring themselves closer to reality. To bring themselves closer to that space between the two worlds. The world of the living and the world that comes after the living. And they would sit there for extended periods of time where their concentration was only on Allah, only on the qualities of Allah, only on understanding the nature that love is. In uh, this present time, Muslims are fasting around the world during the day. 
It's called Ramadan. It's a month where you're supposed to fast from uh, dawn till sunset. But a Sufi will tell you that if you can't fast from your bad qualities, God doesn't need you to fast from food. And that kind of understanding is where Sufism takes you. You cannot perform through physical means that which needs to be done on an internal spiritual level. Somehow, you have to make these commitments on an internal spiritual level so that you become that kindness. Why do, why, why is fasting prescribed? Fasting is prescribed so that each of us can feel the hunger of the ones who are hungry in the world. So that there's sort of a equality among people. So that we become close to the ones that have nothing. There's a story of uh, uh, a group of boys who went to work for a man who had a hazelnut farm. And they were picking hazelnuts for him. And at the end of the day, he gave them a large bag of hazelnuts. And uh, the boys said, well, how are we going to split these up? And they said, well, let's go ask the hoja. Hoja means imam, the prayer leader, or the, uh, the one who instructs in the local village. And so they went to the hoja, and they said, uh, how can we split these up? And the hoja said, do you want me to do this according to man's law or according to God's law? And they all said, do it according to God's law. So he took the bag and emptied it out on the ground in front of the boys. And there were five boys. And he told them to sit in a circle around them, around the nuts. And he took a a stick and pushed the, the nuts into two equal approximately equal uh, piles. And he gave one pile to the first boy. Then he took the stick and made the next pile into two piles and gave one of those piles to the second boy. Then he took the final pile and made it into two piles again and gave half of it, gave half of it to the third boy and half of it to the fourth boy. And the fifth boy got nothing. Ramadan is about sitting with the ones who got nothing. Ramadan is the understanding that God gives out as he decides, and it is not for us to judge. And there is a certain grace in nothing. And we have to enter that grace once a year, during this month of Ramadan by resisting certain things that we think we need all the time. Of course, in most of the world, Ramadan works like this. People sleep in the daytime, they get up at sunset, and they eat till the sun comes up, and then they go back to sleep. But that's shariat. As long as you conform to the nature of the law, you fulfilled your duty. Do you all understand the difference between conforming 
to the, to the letter of the law or conforming to the real intent, that should explain that. So, when we go to Hakikat, we begin to love. We begin to do away with the separation between ourselves and others. One of the practices of the Halveti order was that two people would sit across from each other and they would look into each other's eyes and continue that way for an extended period of time until they couldn't tell each other apart. They disappeared into each other. Is it possible that we can disappear into others? Is it possible that we can allow others to disappear into us? Is it possible that we can exist and disappear simultaneously? Is it possible to be and not to be? It's not to be or not. It's not to be or not to be. It's to be and not to be. And this is the complexity of our situation. We're all physical beings. And even though we may lose ourselves to the ecstasy of divine love, we still are. And we can't maintain that station. We have to come back and do what needs to be done in this world. So the path goes from understanding the law to entering a path where you're looking for God, where you learn how to appropriately act within a community of people who want to act appropriately to going to the place where you're craving for transcendence becomes so great that you begin to lose your connection with the world. You begin to lose your connection with fame. You begin to lose your connection with titles. You begin to lose your connection with all of the things that we think give us status. So, you begin to lose your connection with status in the world. There's no longer high and low. They're just God's creation. A dervish came knocking on the door. I'm sorry. A beggar came knocking on the door where there was a meeting going on with a sheikh and his dervishes. And one of the dervishes got up and answered the door. And the beggar said, can I have a loaf of bread? And the dervish said to him, come back, and the dervish said to him, come back later, we're busy here. And he went back and sat down. And the sheikh said, what happened? And he said, a man came and he asked for bread. I sent him away. He said, if God saw fit to give him a soul, I can see fit to give him a loaf of bread. Take a loaf of bread and chase him and give it to him and don't come back until you've accomplished your task. We need to understand that the spark of the Creator 
is within his creation. And what happens too often is that we don't see the spark of the creator. We see the shell of the illusory nature that has developed in this world that hides that spark. And we look at that as reality. That's not reality. That's not what's going on. What's going on is much deeper. Now, some go beyond Hakikat to the fourth station, which is called Marifat. And Marifat means that you spend most of your time not being. You don't go into ecstasy some of the time. You're in ecstasy most of the time, separated from this world and closer to God. You've aligned yourself to where the glory that is his passes through you because all of the blocks, all of the veils that we've created individually have disappeared and this is now allowed to flow through. And when we say, Yarachman, mercy, we are mercy. And so when we say, Yarachman, 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 most mercy flows through our fingertips, comes through our mouth, shoots from our eyes. This is the state that Sufism is trying to take you to. And at this state, if we do the work, it's called the station marifat of man-god, God-man. Man is lost in God and aligned with God. So what comes through us and out of us is God's will on earth. So now we are no longer manifestations of elemental creation. We are now manifestation of non-elemental qualities like love. Imagine being a manifestation of love. Imagine being without all of the attachments that we are usually with that keep us from that state. And these things are what are called the veils that separate us from God. Each one of our needs is a separation from our, from God. Each one of our doubts is a veil that separates us from God. Each one of these things from the world that we hold on to is a separation from God. And as we can let go, the big song now, let it go, each one of these things that we can do to let go brings us closer to hakikat, reality, on the way towards marifat, disappearance. And that state of disappearance is known as 
Fana. Fana means to be merged into God. But when people reach that state, they also have to have wisdom. There was a great Sufi in around the 11th, 12th century whose name was Halaj. And he had merged into that state where he no longer exist, existed. And he ran around saying, Anal Haq, Anal Haq, which means I am reality. I am reality. And the king cut his head off. So what the true uh, man of understanding does is that when he's with people who are in the shariat, the law, he acts the way they act within the law. When he's with the ones who have disappeared, he's someone else. So there's this fine line of understanding wherein even though in the state of love, in the state of disappearance, we are beyond the law, when we are with the people in the law, we still need to be within the law. We should never assume that we have transcended the law. We always have to understand that we are bound by the law. So we have disappeared and are simultaneously bound at the same time. So the law no longer becomes a burden. It just becomes something that's done because the world doesn't exist for you anymore. Um, this is a lifetime's work. I sat with my teacher for 12 years and he talked at me and others day in, day out, repeating these understandings. Um, a lot of these understandings reside in me now and I repeat them to others. And one day, you'll be able to repeat some of these understandings to others. But first, we need to become these understandings. These are not things to talk about. These are things to become. And may God have the mercy on each of us to allow us to become aligned with him. Amin, amin, ya Rabbil Alameen.